Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing locks, as my pretty bride insists I always include, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio with me, looking just as glorious as usual. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone and share some of your special, you know, insight, motivation and enthusiasm for the day. And please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And I don't insist on shoes and ships and sealing wax. It just makes me smile every time. So I get that that boost of positive chemicals going through my body. And we can all do with some of that. So, yeah, find ways that make you happy. Maybe uh, share a little something with your loved ones, you know, your your partner, your kids. Just a little something to to boost their day too yeah Eldon and I do find some creative ways to to have some fun and bring laughter in even during isolation so just go for it um, to learn more about the show um, we have the website provocativeenlightenment.com there you will find around 15 years of archived shows there it's a great way to learn a whole variety of stuff that you wouldn't think about without necessarily having to go read the books. We've had some incredible guests on the show. They've brought a wealth of information. Um, so, yeah, go check out the archives. And if you heard them all live before, well, it was 15 years ago. So go back and play them again. We also have our Facebook page so just search for provocative enlightenment radio you'll find us there and any important earls and stuff that is shared uh, by the guest online i will post up there so that's the facebook page for provocative enlightenment radio all right in this week's spotlight i want to address the subject of ahimsa or respect for all life technically ahimsa according to the hindu buddhist and jainist traditions refers to the respect for all living things and avoidance of violence toward others. Ahimsa is an ethical principle or standard by which all actions are judged. Now, in Jainism and for an ascetic observing the great vows, Mahavatra, Ahimsa entails the greatest care to prevent the ascetic from knowingly or unknowingly being the cause of injury to any living soul, jiva. Thus, ahimsa applies not only to human beings and to large animals, but also to insects, plants, and microbes. Though the Hindus and the Buddhists never required so strict an observance of ahimsa as the Jains, vegetarians' intolerance toward all forms of life became widespread in India. What makes all life special? Why is it that India should be more sensitive to all life than the rest of the world? 
Well, the fact is they're not. Indeed, according to a BBC report, Hindus, who make up 80% of the Indian population, are major meat eaters. It's a bit like why so many Christians appear to ignore much of the biblical literature. Still, the question remains, is all life special? And if so, in what way and why? While we're at it, we might ask why we eat pigs, cattle, sheep, goats, and so forth, but not dogs or horses or cats. Why not rats, for that matter? After all, many eat squirrel. Why is it? What is it? Where? In our culture? I mean, what informs us that some things are good and some disgusting? My lovely wife, Ravinder, is vegan, and she will go to great lengths to avoid any and all animal products. That said, when she was pregnant with our first, she had a craving for chicken, and I was amazed at how much chicken she could eat in a single sitting. However, whether guilt or pride, when our second came along, her craving was for beef, and she resisted it. After our second was born, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Among the treatment protocols that reversed her condition completely was a beef extract. Coincidence? Every week, among our commercial breaks, you will hear ads promoting animal care. Animals have a lot to teach us, and sometimes they are our most important friends. Dogs sniff out bombs, help the blind navigate, guard our homes, and much more. But rats detect landmines, llamas patrol farms, squirrels help trees take root, bees are powerful pollinators, beavers combat climate change, cats and dogs serve as companion animals, helping to reduce depression and loneliness. Horses and mules pull loads. Horses are excellent at equine rehabilitation, for a number of human disorders, and so it goes on and on. Question. What do we owe the animal world? How special should we treat them? Just how much ahimsa is due the animal world? From my perspective, they deserve absolutely as much as you and I can reasonably give them. Those are my thoughts. As always, I welcome yours. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, you hit on an important question there is what can we do reasonably? Um, you know, I don't know. I do believe humans have evolved greatly um, over the centuries. And today we aspire to higher goals and values. And we have technology that makes things a lot easier. So, you know, if the only thing you can do, if you have to kill to survive or to take care of your children, that's one thing, but most of us don't live that way. Um, for me, I think about the popular meme that goes around on Facebook that says something like, when I look into the eyes of an animal, I see a soul. When I look in the eyes of, you know, our pets, our dogs, the cat, even Freya has honorary as Freya, our cat can be. Um, I see a friend. I see a soul. Um, so I have to do the best that I could do. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. 
Our last show featured the future of fusion energy with Drs. Jason Parisi and Justin Ball. CB wrote, great show, nice primer on fusion energy and how far it has progressed. On reflection of the neutrino byproduct conversation and the less than peanut subsidy the U.S. government has invested in research, if there was not so much public pushback on the neutron bomb back in the 80s, how much farther would we be in fusion energy production efficiency today? Which, of course, goes back to the show's beginning and the ethics in technology research. Jonah wrote, I think you're right, Dr. Taylor. We need some of being informed and alerting those in power so that we don't have science overtake and violate our ethical standards. Moving on, Nadia Road, I am from the UK and I am a great fan of your Intertalk programs. I have used them for years with excellent results. I love them and recommend them to everyone. Jan Road, I have learned and enjoyed a calmer, more confident life thanks to your Intertalk programs. Thank you for all the time and work you put into your programs. They have made me think with confidence and courage. Well, great, Jan, you deserve that. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N, eldon at eldontaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now, before we introduce our guest and show today, let's pause for just a moment to remember Pearl Harbor and acknowledge the men and women who paid for our freedom, including those who paid the ultimate price. To all who served, thank you. We pray for peace. Now to today's show, A Glimpse Behind the Veil with Richard Rowland. Now, our guest has been on the show before, but it's been some time ago, so let me tell you a little about him. Richard Rowland is a two-tour veteran of the Vietnam War, a 28-year veteran of law enforcement, retiring from the Kentucky State Police as a sergeant. He has also owned an equine boarding training, foaling facility for 20 years. Currently is a writer, public speaker, mentor, and cancer coexister. Let me tell you a little bit more about his book. A Glimpse Behind the Veil, Stories About the Human-Animal Connection. Now, Richard, when you do join me, just say hello, and I'll know that you're here. But until then, I'll go ahead and talk about your book. Uh, I came to know Richard, oh, gosh, I don't know, um, several years ago, before his first book came out. Um, he's a cancer survivor, and uh, we became friends, and we exchanged stories about horses. Uh, there was a time in my life that I owned an all-breed stallion station and uh, racing stable, and I had a, a few of my own epiphanies about animals. I'll share one of those while we're waiting. <clears throat> See, I became... Uh, vegetarian after being a rancher. There was a time when uh, every year uh, we would run on down to a farm not far from us and we would get some Jersey bulls. Now these were bull calves and anyone that's been around dairy farms knows that 
there's no place for a bull calf, so uh, many of them are just lunked in the head. Well, horses, on the other hand, they waste a lot of hay. And uh, because they waste all this hay, it occurred to me that we could utilize that hay that they'd pulled out of their manger and walked on and even urinated on by fattening up some cattle. So we picked up these Jersey bulls and bull calves, and we brought them over to the ranch, and we started feeding them hay, bad hay. And, you know, they were fine. They they fattened up real quick. And uh, so come the fall, and of course, we would divvy them up typically, send them to the to slaughter, and you know, most of the ranch hands would dig in, and they, they want a half a beef or a quarter beef, and they'd fill the lockers. Well, one year, we had a young calf that came over that uh, scoured very badly, had diarrhea, and scouring like that can kill a calf. So I brought this calf into the barn, and I took to bottle feeding it and taking care of it, and, you know, it was a black and white. It looked just like that boss cow that we used to see on the milk uh, cartons. And so I called it boss, and pretty quick, you know, I had this calf following me everywhere. And it wasn't a lot different than, you know, any other animal that bonds to you. It bonded to me, and it'd follow me every place, and everyone thought that was really cute. And uh, then one day it came time to send the calves to slaughter. Well, I rode over to the slaughter yard, as usual, with my ranch foreman, and uh, we unloaded the calves, and... Started him up a chute, and just before this calf was to receive a nail gun, uh, it turned and looked at me and, and called like it often called when it got in trouble. And my stomach went to my knees. It, was, it suddenly dawned on me what I was doing. I, I, I was just completely dissonant. I had no awareness until that moment, and once I was aware, it was too late. So too late. It still bothers me a lot to tell this story. Um, it was like I, I just, you know, shot my dog and said, you know, slaughter him up, dress him out, let's put him in the freezer. Um that was a turning point in my life. That was a point when suddenly it, I realized uh, what I was doing. And uh, for all intent and purposes, I became vegetarian. Then I met my lovely wife. And uh, she, of course, was vegan. And she started to talk to me about, you know, the problems of mass farming chickens and uh, dairy cattle and milk and giving up cheese and things of that nature was like, you've got to be kidding. But today, the people at the local pizza parlors, and there's a couple of them, they know us. And they know us for ordering what I affectionately refer to as naked pizzas. Pizzas without any cheese. Are you there, Richard? I am, Eldon. Well, welcome, sir. I was hoping you would just speak up as soon as you arrived, but I'm glad you're here. I just shared a story about how I became 
vegetarian. I wouldn't say that I'm completely vegan yet, but sometimes, mostly. <laughs> How are you doing today, my friend? I am tickled to death to be here, number one. Number two, I'm sorry about the technical issues. I could hear you just fine, but you couldn't hear me. Listen, uh, Richard, if you could hear us, then you heard the spotlight, right? I did. I did. What have I got wrong, sir? I don't think you have anything wrong. Uh, I think I think we need to take another look at how we treat the animal kingdom, period, including me. And, you know, it's kind of funny because the older I get, the more difficulty I actually have eating meat. Now, I, I don't have a problem with people that do. But uh, for some reason, the last four or five years, I think, I think in my awakening with the animal kingdom, I've come to see things differently than I did before. And uh, I actually have some difficulty at times eating meat. You you make quite a point several times in your book. You you suggest that domesticated animals deserve the greatest of our respect and care. What makes a domesticated animal in your mind different from animals, period, other animals, and, and, and how? I'm not too awful sure that there there is a difference in my mind. I think uh, I, I've made that point on domesticated animals because we are the ones who domesticated them. And, and when we do that, I think we have more of an obligation to them. But I don't think there's any animal that we can't coexist with and, and treat better than we currently do. Let, let me ask you, let's just back up and get some foundation here, because since you arrived in late, I, I really didn't do that. Uh, you're a cancer survivor, Richard. You know, please tell us about that and, and what it has meant to your life and uh, how it may have, or if it did, uh, well, I know it did, so I'm just going to say how it reoriented some of your values. Um. A cancer diagnosis for me was was more of an awakening or a rebirth or a birth of spirituality in me. Um, I read early on in several books when I was when I was trying to discover my way through this onus that uh, a lot of people considered a cancer diagnosis a blessing. And I remember thinking vividly <laughs> as I read those words that it was one blessing I could do without. But as I've traveled with it, um, I, I don't think my life would have turned out the way it has, and I'm really happy with the way it's turned out, if I hadn't been diagnosed with cancer, if I hadn't had that kind of a smack upside the head to rethink what's been in front of me all along or, or discover what's been in front of me all along that I failed to see. Can you flesh that out a little more for us? I mean... What is it you see now you didn't see before? When I was, I can remember vividly, uh, shortly, within the first couple of three weeks of being diagnosed with cancer, uh, it's it, uh, a rare blood cancer. It's related to the time I spent in Vietnam. I can remember being at the house uh, by myself on my knees. And this is somebody with no organized religion upbringing at all. Um, screaming at the unfairness of, of 
what was happening to me. I mean, everything in my life was going perfectly at the time. Couldn't couldn't go any better. Successful business, happy marriage, tremendous uh, son. He was a sophomore in high school at the time. And I was on my knees and I was screaming and crying, sobbing. I mean, I'd really kind of lost control of it because I, I just didn't know where to go. And uh, I had this feeling wash over me that I can remember it, it, it exactly. It was things are not as they seem. And I'm, I don't think that way. I don't have those kind of words. I didn't have that kind of a background. But things aren't the way it seemed. Things started happening to me in front of me. It was like animals was the catalyst for the change that I had to go through to find my way back. Things started happening. I'm, I'm, I'm a science guy. I'm a black and white, right, wrong, not much in between. Uh, that was my ideology. And all, the thing, all of a sudden, things through the animal kingdom started happening to me um, that you just could not explain with science. I mean, you, you've experienced some of the same things, I know, because we've had uh, the conversation. But um, things started happening that you just can't, uh, you can't explain this. This is impossible. But it, and it happened often. And it was as, as if, and that was the title of the second book, A Glimpse Behind the Veil, it was as if the, the veil thinned and I was allowed to see something more than what I thought. And that's what led me to, I ended up being a writer. Um, and it's been fun. <laughs> but you, I think you more know, importantly is I've learned to coexist with with, uh, with cancer. I, I uh, am diagnosed with, I never lay claim to it and say I have, I am diagnosed with an incurable cancer. It can be treated, um, obviously. Of course, they didn't tell me that at the time. At the time, they told me I had three years to live, and they would make me comfortable. And I, I think all of that played into my spiritual birth. You know, you and I have talked about this before. I lost a good friend in Vietnam uh, to Agent Orange. Uh, he called for a strike, and the defoilant was laid down. And according to Bill, uh, heavy enough right where they were. Uh, and it was um, a bit of a miss, of course, um, that he had to take his shirt off and dry his face, and he died of leukemia. Was it orange that uh, is implicated in the cause behind your cancer? Yes, it's it's one of the 12 things that the VA and, and the Army accepts as being related. All right. Do you think, Richard, we've got a break just a minute or so away, and I want to get this in first. Do you think animals understand us, sense our feelings, and so forth? I do, without a doubt. Uh, there's no other way to explain some of the things that I've seen and, and some of the things that people have told me, uh, especially with the second book and being able to interview people from actually from all over the world. I think that what I always wrote off as coincidental prior to all of this, to this awakening is actually communication. And, and I think that's where we fail animals. We see things and we write it off automatically as just coincidence. And I think we need to look at it a little bit deeper. I, I think there's more to it than that. I think every animal lover is familiar with the Rainbow Bridge poem. 
Uh, it tends to make us feel warm and fuzzy and hopeful. Do you think animals have an afterlife? Do I think animals have an afterlife? Yes. I do. I, I Animals are no different than us. Uh, animals are energy. We're energy. Energy can't be destroyed. has to go somewhere. has to become something else. Uh, so I absolutely believe that... Uh, you know, we we call it the Rainbow Bridge, uh, and that's a, that's 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 is a nice way to put it. But yes, I believe they go on to something else, and I, I'm not too sure they don't return. Uh, just like I believe we return. All right, we do have that break I spoke about. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to give us an example of an experience or something you have learned that would indicate animals have an afterlife. We're speaking with Richard Rowland about his book and his life, A Glimpse Behind the Veil. I cannot recommend this book too highly. It, if, if you care at all about, if there's any compassion in you at all towards animals, you must read this book. It will inspire you. It, you'll cry. Um, you'll have goosebumps. It is a must-read. A Glimpse Behind the Veil. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting Richard Rowland. That's R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Richard Rowland Books is one word, dot com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Richard Rowland about his work and book, A Glimpse Behind the Veil. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting richardrolandbooks.com. You want a very pretty book, an inspiring book, an uplifting book, and a gift for Christmas, go look at this book. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, well, I'll let Richard tell you everywhere you can find the book, but I have a copy of it in my hand. It is a gorgeous book, and I guarantee you... Whoever you give it to is going to come back to you and tell you, wow, thanks. What a great book that was. 
All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a hobby of mine and a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, Richard, your chosen music is Tim McGraw performing Humble and Kind. Please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does this inform us about who you are? I, I, I don't think I could emphasize strongly enough how much that song means to me. It's, it's almost my anthem. When I sit at the computer and get ready to write or I'm looking for inspiration to write, I usually have music going on in the background. And that song will get played at the beginning and invariably it will be played again sometime at point in time while I'm working. I just I get inspiration from the words. And I think if as a country, as a species, if if we could live the words of that song, what a wonderful world we'd be in. I you can't beat it. I'll amen to that, sir. All right. I promised you that I was going to ask you for a story that would illustrate why we should accept the notion that an animal has an afterlife. Please share that with us, sir. I there's I, I think there's a lot of stories I could share, but I'm, I'm going to share one with you. We, uh, we have animals, uh, companion animals, and always have all of my life. But um, my my uh, wife and son back on the farm, they rescued a litter of kittens. The mother uh, had been killed by coyotes. And there were three kittens that, that made it. That's all we could find. And they wanted to bottle feed them. And uh, I said, okay, chances are we're, we won't get through this. They're too young. I mean, they were, they were days old. <clears throat> One of the kittens made it. He was named Prowler. And uh, I told him in the beginning, I, I really didn't want a cat in the house. And I said, okay, you can, if you've made it this far, you've done a wonderful job. Uh, I'm glad you have a pet cat, but I don't want him in the house. When he gets big enough, you're going to have to break him in and, and let him be in the barn, be a barn cat. And uh, about three weeks later, it, uh, was decided that we would indeed have a house cat <laughs> and Prowler stayed in the house and he, he we used to we used to leave and come to Maine uh, together at Christmas time we'd fly up for just a couple of days and we had somebody that would be house sitting for us or somebody that would check in and uh, feed and water uh, Prowler but uh, one year when we returned uh, we had to, we didn't have anything for supper and we had to stop after we landed in Louisville and get something to eat. And I received a phone call from my friend telling me that Prowler had uh, passed away while we were gone. Really never knew why, uh, but he did. He died and it tore everybody up. As you um, plainly know, you've been through it before. But to this day, my friend, even in Maine, I will still catch a glimpse of a cat in, in, in my vision, and it is him. Now, whether that's my mind doing it to me, I, I don't know why it would. After all these years, he's been gone, goodness sakes, um, 12, 13, 14 years. But I still see him, 
on occasion. I still feel his energy on occasion. And I'm convinced that uh, the energy of the animals uh, continues on in some shape form. I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. My own experience indeed would confirm that. But like you, uh, I suppose there are some things in life we can say scientifically we just simply can't prove. Um, We can't, for example, extract love from your brain and evaluate it. So we have to accept that when you say you love something, well, that's something similar to what maybe I feel when I love something. Um, and I and I believe that's uh, the instance when it comes to many spiritual matters. They are just outside the, the scope of uh, objectivity because they are subjective in nature, period. And by definition, they're outside. Would you say then, sir, that animals, at least domestic animals, are sensitive to our feelings and even our intent? Uh, absolutely. The connection between human and animal is, is much more, much deeper than most people realize because they write things off as coincidental. Once you start seeing it as communication, you, uh, you discover a whole new way of looking at the animal kingdom. But the perfect example, um, I know you know about Pal, one of my horses. He recently uh, crossed the Rainbow Bridge himself. Um, yes. The 13th of, uh, I think it was 13th of uh, November. And uh, if I was having a bad day when I owned the stables and he was one of the horses that I, we adopted him, we took care of him. He would come up to me and just stand and hang his head, but be close. And there was something comforting in that. And and he was a foundered horse, so when he would uh, cycle in and out of bouts of laminitis, where he, he uh, extremely painful existence, I would play the harmonica for him, and he would calm down. I'm not a good harmonica player. <laughs> But I would play the harmonica the best I could for him. And uh, it, for some reason, it would ease the pain. But he was also playful. He would play tag. He would play hide-and-seek. He would peek at you around a corner and then jerk his head back, just like a child would do. And the longer we were together and the longer that I got to experience him, there were so many qualities that I wouldn't have seen before that once you can accept that there are a little bit more to them than you thought, you start seeing things. Richard, I I know that you're familiar with some of the experiments that have been done by way of human intention. And uh, my own experience has been that, you know, I have seen animals... um, immediately attached to someone and i've seen him just absolutely not want anything to do with another uh with that particular person and i've always put that down to the intent in that person's mind now sometimes the intent is i'm just scared to death you know i'm I'm fearful it's a big mean dog or look at how big that horse is or something of that nature but sometimes the intent is something else because i've seen rodeo cowboy 
types uh, that a, a horse just simply would have nothing to do with, uh, wouldn't load in a trailer, would quarrel with them until the day, until night came. Um <laughs> Because, you, you know, they had that mentality, that bigger hammer mentality. If it doesn't fit the first time, just use a bigger hammer. Have you experienced that? Do you think animals share the same kind of ability to sense intent or to to express intent that human beings do? Absolutely. Um, I've mostly post-diagnosis, I've had closer relationships with animals than I had before. And I won't mention any names, but I had two people that were boarding a couple of horses with me. They had uh, taken a Primarin mare that had never been broke, a thoroughbred, and they were uh, training her. I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word break, but and they were doing a good job. They were. They were. But Sometimes the horse didn't want to do what they wanted him to do. And uh, she would go as far as when this couple would show up to work the horse. <clears throat> she wouldn't let him catch her. And I can see, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there watching them and I can see their shoulders up and the tightness in them. And I'm seeing the same thing the horse is seeing. Uh, the horse realizes something's up because of the way they're acting, and they're fearful they're not going to be able to catch her. And she would run, and I can—I swear, I, I'm watching two adult humans chase a horse mm. around a pasture. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to win that. And I, I remember, I, I finally one day I, I had watched it enough, and I walked out and I said, it, "Guys, can I help you? Do you do you need some help?" Well, yeah, she can't be caught today. We're not we're not going to be able to do anything with her. Mm-hmm. And I said, give me five, ten minutes. Just go to the barn. And Eldon, all I did different was drop my shoulders so that my I'm not giving the appearance that I'm upset or tight. And uh, I walked in the pasture, stood by the gate with a halter, with a lead rope. And she walked right up to me. And I put yeah. the halter in the lead rope. I put the halter on her and was standing there, and I whistled for them to come out. And uh, they just couldn't believe that I'd caught this horse. And I said, so, y'all, you guys need to relax when you come out here. This is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be a job. The horse is reading your body language because that's the only way it has to communicate. It doesn't understand what you're saying in words. It's reading what you're showing. And animals are capable of doing that. There are several stories in your book that I found, you know, very moving. Tell me, Richard, do you believe animals have a spiritual awareness? I may be in the minority of people, but yes, I do. I, I believe they have an awareness. I believe when when you take, uh, I dealt with the uh, symptoms of PTSD for decades without seeking out help because when I initially um, tried to tell somebody that I was having trouble, uh, I was told suck it up and go home. <laughs> that yeah. that was uh, a sign of the times. 
when I see animals successfully help people who are, who, are, who are diagnosed with PTSD or really struggling a lot more than I ever did, and I see them successful with that, yes, I believe they have spiritual side. I believe they understand. I believe they have something to offer. Uh, and I, I hope to live another 20, 30 years so I can continue studying this and, and witnessing what they do. You know, I've seen animals, um, well, I, I, I'm going to say that differently. I, I have read stories of animals who sacrifice their lives for their master, uh, or for that matter, for a mate. Um, and when we see a human being do that, we, we're obligated, I believe, to recognize that there is a level of love uh, it, it rises above more than just duty or obligation. I mean, when it, but but of of love, compassion. Do you in in your own mind? Do you find your experience that animals are capable of literally being willing to give their lives up to save those they love? I do, and, and as a matter of fact, there's at least one story in the my latest book that that talks about just that i'm wanting to say the horse's name is gobbin but I, I'm, i'd have to get the book out and look at it again um uh, refused to cross a bridge one night in darkness um there were three people on the wagon two women and a small child and uh, no headlights during that that time all you had was your your buggy lanterns your wagon lanterns and they had uh, been to town too late and was going back in the dark. You know, could see enough of the road. They came to a bridge and the horse wouldn't cross it. Absolutely refused. Nothing they could do. And at the time, they actually took a whip to it to try to make it go forward. And it just would not do it. And they turned around and they went back to town and they ended up staying with friends. And the next morning, they got everything loaded up again. And... He got um, Gobbin, if that was his name, hooked up to the wagon and started out again. And when they got to the bridge, there was a crowd there. And it was a crowd of people who were trying to work on the bridge because the bridge had collapsed the night before. There wasn't one there. Now, number one, how did the horse know? And and I don't I no longer write these things off as coincidental. But how? not only how did the horse know, but he had such a a love for the people that, that were in his care that he wouldn't go forward. He wouldn't take a chance on them getting hurt. Yeah, it's an incredible story. That's exactly what I was thinking of. All right, I got a couple of tough ones. They kind of come by way of my wife, uh, who is a true animal lover. So pigs demonstrate the intelligence of a three-year-old child. Can you imagine telling your three-year-old daughter or son that it's time to kill them and prepare them for dinner? I mean, imagine how you would react, how they would react, running and screaming. Exactly. Like I say, Richard, this may be tough, but when you look at an animal, when you think about having your morning bacon or your ham... Um, do you think of it in context of, you know, this animal was as smart as a three-year-old child? 
part of me wants to stay say unfortunately, but but yes, I do. And and that I, this is kind of funny because I don't think I've ever told anybody this before. I don't even think I've told this to my wife, but I have difficulty eating pork. And the reason for that is because if it's if it's recognizable, like it is a pork chopper, it's something that's recognizable to have come from a pig. I go to cut into it, and I think of Babe the Pig from the movie. Um, and I have it. I have a lot of difficulty with that. I I don't fault people who are not vegetarians. We're uh, we're omnivores uh, for the biggest part. And in the in the last chapter of the latest book, I, I actually talk about this. Um, I don't think we treat animals as humanely as we need to. And I, I understand the farmer's dilemma of uh, I, a lot of, I have so many friends who are farmers. That's what they do every day. And they're trying, they're not only trying to make a living, but without them, they feed the world. And, and they have restrictions and, and they have things that are time consuming and they try to cut corners. But I don't think corners should be cut in how we treat the animals. You get a big amen out of that from me. I mean, I, I, I think of the rancher who will stay up all night to, to save a cow. Um, to save any form of livestock, uh, and and will you know weather the, the the worst weather in order to bring them in and sudden snowstorms and things, and how much care they have for them, um, and so there's a part of me that wants to see ranching in in in, in that pure state, but then. That's not how ranching is today. The commercial meat business is an entirely different business. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, I, I can't claim to be vegan, um, but the eggs I eat come from my wife's chickens, so I know they wander around anywhere. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but it, it you know it can be it, it can be very difficult to to balance these things. Horse meat, as a case in point, is a delicacy in Europe. Would you eat a horse? And, and if mm -hmm. not, why not? And, and, and can you say how horse is different than any other domesticated animal? I mean, I can't square that, but there's no way in the world you would ever get me to eat a horse. No, me neither. And, and I, th I think a lot of that is the ideology that we're born with. Uh, we're, it's... Had I been born into a, uh, a mother and father and a family that were vegan, uh, this wouldn't be difficult for me at all. But I wasn't. I was born with, I was gifted a, an ideology at birth that became my belief system. Yeah, and I don't want to call that a cop-out, boss. But, you know, you and I both, if we're square with each other, know that there's a whole lot of stuff we're born with. But then we come to a place of maturity where, you know, we know how these influences uh, dominate some of our thinking. And what makes us different as, a, as adult human beings is that we have the cognitive abilities to change that program. 
I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, I, I got some of that too. But last question. What did you want your readers to take away from your book, Richard? What I hope that they take away from it is is the coincidence that they're used to applying to animals' actions is communication. And look at that a little bit deeper. And be aware that animals are trying to communicate with us, but we're not seeing it because of our belief systems. And once you do that you start seeing all of them differently. Yeah, amen to that. All right, please take a minute or so and tell everybody how they can get your book, uh, find your blog, and so forth. And I understand you've also got a, a promotion on for signed copies of the book. So don't just send them to an Amazon. If there's a different place where they can get signed copies, you know, fill us in, tell the whole story. Well, you, know, the, you have to mention Amazon. They sell the most books of, of anybody. I make very little money on what gets sold at Amazon, but they are they are where the books move. Um, the, the book goes from my publisher to Ingram Distributing, and it goes to about 14 different retailers. So there's it. I'm sure that wherever people are used to buying books, they're going to be able to find it. If they don't have it on the shelf, they'll be able to order it for them. If they wanted a signed copy, uh, they can write to me. At, uh, this is all spelled out, no spaces, no capitals. Uh, it's double R stables, plural, at gmail.com. And I, I do have a limited number of books that I can uh, put an inscription in and sign them and ship uh, to anybody that wanted a signed version. And a signed version of your book, is it? does it cost more, or is it the same price as if I got it at Amazon? It, no, Amazon undercuts me <laughs> by about $4 right now. Uh, I can't sell them as cheap as Amazon does. It's a great read. It's a great book. That's com. Is that right? No, Stables at Gmail. At G oh, your email. Yeah, Stables yeah, at Gmail. Okay, send him a note. Get the book. I want to thank you, Richard, for sharing your work and your experiences with us, and I want to wish you the very best in your endeavors to come, and I hope you've got another book and more research coming down the pike because I've loved both of them. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.